Well, we're going to jump in. I, uh, it's our last week in our, we've been, uh, I mean, we've been in a series for a year. Can you believe it? A whole year. We won't do this again, but it's a whole year going through the church calendar. And, um, and so I hope you have a sense of it now. Maybe some of you will never touch the church calendar again. That's okay. But I want to remind you why I felt like it was worth doing for a year. I, as a part of my prayer life, I pray the gospel text each week in my own personal prayer life with Jesus. As a reminder, every year I go through kind of the life and ministry cycle of Jesus. The church calendar has been, been around for a long time. <laughs> It spans many ge- denominations, right? Like it's, uh, it's not here by accident. And so one last time I want to walk you through why I think this is such a possibly powerful tool to shape you, to form you, right? We're always being formed, but how could this form you? So next week we'll talk, we're going to go into, we're going to be looking for Jesus in Genesis uh, for the next few weeks. So it'll be during Advent, but we'll talk a little bit about Advent, not as much as we, we did last year. But Advent is a season where we practice waiting on God. Uh, Why is this important? Because if you walk with Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you already know or you're about to find out somehow that you will go through a season where you are waiting on God. I know I could ask for an amen. Amen, amen, right? I'm waiting on God to move. Amen. Now, if you practice the church calendar, imagine what this will do for you. Every year, you practice waiting on God. So when you find yourself in those seasons where you're waiting on God, you're not surprised. Oh, I practice this every year. And what do you learn every year? What comes at the end of Advent? Christmas comes, which means Advent always ends with Christmas. That means when we are waiting on God, he always arrives. You get used to that. It gets built into you. You know he's coming. And you also prepare yourself to find out he's going to come in surprising ways. How many people saw a baby in a manger, you know, like this? But he's going to come in surprising ways. And then when God comes, what he does, this is epiphany, what he does is he reveals himself. When we go through epiphany, we read some of these crazy stories from the Gospels, these amazing things that Jesus does to reveal who he is and his power and his authority and his majesty. That often happens when God comes, he's, we're overwhelmed by who he is. But as we continue to walk with him, we quickly learn that it's not all Wow! And we enter into the season of Lent. And if we're going to follow Jesus and walk in his ways and learn his ways, we are going to have to take up our own cross and follow him. There's stuff in us that needs to die. There's things we need to be cleansed of. And Lent is a very kind of sober, it's not a fun season at all, but it's a very, very important season if you're going to follow Jesus. And so every year we remember, oh yeah, i got to take up my cross. I know that. God comes in amazing ways, but i got to take up my cross. But even if I die to self, even if I have to go through some painful suffering, Easter always comes on the back end of Lent, right? There's another amen, right? Easter always comes. And whatever is, 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 is crucified within you, whatever is, dies within you, is resurrected in Christ. And so we spend 40 days celebrating new creation, right? The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits, new creation. We celebrate the new creation and what that means, this new life that is available for us. We'll talk a little bit about paradise at the end of our message today. And then uh, a Pentecost comes, right? So the Holy Spirit, we just sang to, actually a lot of what we sang I'm going to preach about, which is really, it's always funny how that works. Not even always intentional. It's just like, wow, I'm going to read that Bible verse that we just sang. But, but Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, it, it, he empowers us. He equips us. 
the very presence of God. And so we celebrate that. We need that. And then we're, we're wrapping up. This the longest period is ordinary time because most of our life is lived in ordinariness, right? <laughs> uh, I was just home. Uh, my, oldest, my mom's oldest sister, my aunt, my Aunt Marge, right? Aunt Marge. Uh, my Aunt Marge passed away last week, and so I went home for the funeral. And I hadn't seen some family for a while. Um, it was a good time to be together to celebrate her life and to mourn her loss. And then people would ask me, what's new with you? And I said, nothing. <laughs> Nothing's new. It's just, I mean, it's or- my life is ordinary. We live most of our life in the ordinariness. Sometimes, but I mean, nothing's new. Nothing's changed since I saw you last, right? Um, I don't know, Jay's hair's a little, I don't know, but nothing's new. So anyway, that's, so that's what we've been doing with the church calendar. And if, if, and that, if that's helpful for you, if you've sensed any of that this year, then find a way. And again, I, you can join our discipleship pathway. There's lots of ways that we kind of use this as a tool to help you grow in Christ. And um, that's the point of it. Uh, now, the final text is interesting. Our final text is really, uh, it's like a Good Friday text. So it's going to feel... It's going to feel a little interesting Thanksgiving week to be preaching the crucifixion of Jesus, but it's Luke 23, 33 to 43. We'll get there in just a second. But, uh, but it, there's many things that we could, we could do with this text. I was, I was reading through it, and just, there's just so much. I, and so I, I actually really even want to invite you, uh, maybe, maybe if you haven't read this for a while, or maybe you've never, but never read it before, maybe grab a Bible and reread Luke 23. Reread these verses. There's... There's way more. I'm going to give you the little nuggets to get you going. There's way more. Just sit with this text. This is, I mean, you're talking Jesus on the cross. I mean, this, for a Christian, this is a significant text. This is a really, really powerful text. And so even as I was reading through it and praying through and thinking through what is God doing in my life, what, what's being communicated in this text, what, what am I praying for, what do I feel like the Holy Spirit is trying to do in our midst this morning, and where I landed what, what, what I'm hoping, what I'm praying, and I think it's God, like, initiated, is that this morning our view of God would grow. <laughs> That's really my prayer. I think it's really easy, and I've been, I've been reminded of this. I, I told First Service this. It's, it's a couple times in the last two weeks, really, I've been with other Christians. Not at Cross. So, so I don't want to, was that me? Did I? Didn't know. Nobody here at Crossview. But I've been with other Christians, and and I, I walked away from the conversation and just was like thinking through a couple things that were said. And I was like, man, that's, I was kind of sad. I'm like, why am I sad? I had to process. What just happened? I'm like, I feel like that was a really small view of God. Like I was just talking to somebody. We were talking about God, but I feel like their view of God's really small. And I'm not judging them because guess what? I can have a small view of God too, right? It's, again, part of these seasons that we go through. But what happens? Why do we... Why do we get a small view of God? God is infinite. God is majestic. God is, I mean, he's amazing. Why do we, why do we shrink him down to less than he is? You might have your own reasons. You might have to stop and think, well, why do I do that? I do, I do it sometimes. Sometimes I, sometimes I just want to simplify God because it's so hard to like talk about this infinite God, right? But I think if I'm really honest, most of the time I'm, I'm shrinking God. Most of the time, it's because I want to control him or manipulate him. 
And if he's too big, I can't do that. But in my mind, I mean, I can't do it anyway, right? But in my mind, I think if I can shrink him down or, or package God in some nice little simple way, then maybe I can manipulate him to do what I want him to do. Maybe I can make God a little more predictable than he is because he's not predictable, right? He's huge. And so as we go through the text and talk about a few things, that's what I'm praying this morning, that, that your view of God would grow. And I could, I mean, sometimes you guys know, sometimes I like to tell stories, and there's probably a few stories I could have tried to tap into your emotions, but really all I want to do is I got a handful of questions, and you'll see. I got a handful of questions that I, I, I just want to present to you as we go along this morning, and I'm hoping these questions will grow your view of God. And then I got actually a couple things from Paul at the end, the Apostle Paul, that, ooh, actually we sang, we sang some of them already, so. Luke 23 Verses 33 to 43, a pretty somber text, but a familiar text and a very, very critical text. I'll just, I'll say a few things as we walk through this. When they came to a place called the skull, which in Latin is Calvary, so you may have heard of Calvary, it's the skull, it's what the place was called. I told you we're right in it. They nailed him to the cross, we're right there. You know, nails and his wrists and his ankles. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. One thing I'll say here as we keep reading, um, you know, when I, was, I, just, I just totally did this first service without thinking about it, but I'll do it again. I don't know. First service, I was thinking, you know, criminal. When I think criminal, I, I, I go back to my cartoon days. You remember being a kid and like the criminals were always like these pudgy guys with referee shirts on sideways, right? So they had white and black stripes running this way and then like a raccoon mask, you know what I'm talking about? Like... Don't picture that. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about like a bank robber. Uh, the, we, we know a little bit more. I mean, now then they actually, when they were first translating this, even the Greek word, the people really primarily who were crucified in the Roman Empire in the first century were one of two categories. They were either runaway slaves or most likely in this instance, insurrectionists. They were people who did not want to be oppressed by the Roman oppressors, and they lashed out likely violently. That's one of the things that makes Jesus unique. He is being crucified as a king, a challenger of Caesar. But of course, we'll talk about his kingdom is radically different, right? And so Jesus is being crucified, and we'll talk about, we'll really kind of focus in on these criminals and their interaction at the end. But they're, they're really insurrectionists. Uh, they've, they've rebelled against Rome, and this is what, okay, you're going to rebel against Rome, this is what happens to you. And you get this famous line from Jesus. Jesus says seven things on the cross with, throughout the gospel accounts. Uh, I think, depending on your translation, it's somewhere around 50 words in English, probably even less in Greek. Uh, Jesus is on the cross, we're told, for six hours. You could say everything he says in about 30 seconds. So he doesn't say a lot from the cross, and there's probably a lot of reasons for it, one of which I told you, uh, uh, when, when they dreamed up crucifixion, they tried to dream up one of the most grotesque, humiliating, and brutal ways to punish and kill someone. It's really horrifying. And so even as you've been beaten and you're just drained of energy and now you're nailed in, they hang you in a way where you have to, li- if I understand, you have to lift up your chest to breathe. So every time you lift yourself up, you're putting further pressure on these nails that are in your joints. 
So every breath is pain, pain. We'll talk a little bit about pain, too, and what Jesus does with it. But I'm just telling you, it's pretty intense. So Jesus only talks for about 30 seconds because every time he does, it hurts. It's hard to breathe. This is the first of his seven sayings. It's incredible. It's incredible. For, I mean, we could, this is what I mean. We could spend the whole sermon on this one line. Jesus, hanging there from the cross, says this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Very famous line for Jesus. Very powerful, very profound. I want to talk a little bit about this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And he's ushering in. I'll, I'll explain it even more as we keep reading. But he's ushering in a kingdom. If you have read the Gospels, you know that earlier his disciples are excited about this kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. And James and John, two of his disciples, say, Jesus, can we sit at your right and your left hand when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. Because this is the moment Jesus comes into his kingdom. This crucifixion is the coronation of King Jesus. You know the stories. You've seen pictures. He is crowned, not with a golden crown, but a crown of thorns. And his throne is not a majestic seat. It is the cross. And so when James and John say, can we come in, in the right in your left hand when you come in the kingdom, they're asking to be the criminals being crucified next to him. Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. Because Jesus is still trying to teach them that his kingdom is radically different. I have a very good feeling. I feel very, very good in saying that some of the things that were echoing in the, in the minds of the people being crucified next to Jesus go back 200 years. And I've talked about this more in another sermon on a deeper scale. But a lot actually happens in between the Old and the New Testament. And, and you have all kinds of stuff happening around Israel. You have Alexander the Great. You've heard that name in his kingdom. And it's divided up. And there's part of, part of his empire becomes ruled by the Seleucid Empire. You don't need to know all this. But eventually a, a, a leader in the year 167 BC, again about, 30, about 200 years before this crucifixion, there's a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he, and he desecrates the temple, and all this stuff gets stirred up, and there is, and it eventually leads to a, a, a revolution, and Israel kind of wins. It's Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabee, you can read about it in the Maccabees books. But in the beginning of all of this, there's a, there's a priest named Mattathias, and he's being killed. Some of you have heard this. He's being killed. And this is what Mattathias says. And this is the kind of thing that honestly would be echoing in the brains of the people on the right and left hand of Jesus. When Mattathias is killed, he says, avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full. Avenge me and pay them back. And you've got to see just that piece. It's there. It's very important to the Jewish people in the first century. What does Jesus say? Do you see how different the kingdom of God is? Jesus does not hang from the cross saying, avenge me! He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And again, if you're tracking with the Gospels, if you read them, you have, and I highly recommend, get to know Jesus. But if you're tracking with the Gospels, what you discover is that Jesus is revealing the heart of God the Father. Jesus is revealing the character of the Father. And so Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And the Father says, of course I will. We are love, and that's what we do. That's what our kingdom is all about. 
So we keep reading, and, and, and the gospel writers all have, Matthew maybe does, the, has like the, the coolest way of doing this, but they all go about showing how Jesus is being enthroned on the cross. And in these next kind of four verses, Luke is going to say five times that Jesus is the king or the Messiah, the one who has come, really to lead Israel out of bondage. But they always assume that would be the bondage of their oppressor, Rome. Jesus came to lead us out of the bondage of sin and death, right? Kind of a better salvation, right? So we keep reading. The soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice, casting lots. And the crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. Again, there's so much irony around this. Jesus truly, he's becoming king of kings and lord of lords, but this is the scenario. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one, anointed. And the soldiers mocked him. And they offered him a drink of sour wine. Imagine being thirsty and getting a glass of vinegar. That's what they offered him. And they called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, right? That's why he's being killed. He's, you know, in opposition to Caesar. Save yourself. And then a sign was fastened above him, which read these words, this is the king of the Jews. And then you've got these two, two different responses on both sides of him. I think it's actually kind of masterful how Luke lays out the story. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, if you're the Messiah, so you're the Messiah. Prove it by saving yourself. And us too, while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God, even when you have been sentenced to die? And I love verse 41, honestly, if you get to know who Jesus is, then every, every one of us in this room could heartfully say verse 41. I mean, we could preach a whole sermon on this verse. We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man. He's done no wrong. A human being who's done no wrong, dying for our crimes. That's a powerful thought. And he turns to Jesus, and again, this is where we'll kind of wrap up our time with these words. It's a prayer, really. Anytime you're talking to Jesus, it's a prayer. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's kind of a bold statement of faith. This man is dying going to be important too. This man is dying. He knows he's dying. Jesus is dying. He sees Jesus is dying, but he has the faith to believe in this other kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And then Jesus says, I assure you, certainly, believe me, trust me, today you will be with me in paradise. All right, so that's our gospel text for the morning. And I told you I want to kind of expand our view of God, and I want to do it with questions this morning. And I'll kind of set it up. If you were with us last week, this might make a little more sense, but if you weren't with us last week, you'll be okay. But last week, our gospel text was Jesus kind of prophesying the fall of the temple in the year 70. He talks about how one stone, no, no stone will be left upon the other. And we talked about, and we raised the question, why, if the, if the temple is God's unique, I mean, obviously God covers the whole earth, he's the creator of all, but, but he uniquely dwells with his people in the temple, why did God allow the temple to be destroyed and never be rebuilt? And if I were to ask you my question, and I if framed it this way at the beginning of the sermon, we kind of talked about things, if I ask you, the temple doesn't need to be, to be rebuilt either because Jesus is the new temple, his body itself is the new temple, or because Jesus is the new high priest, 
or because Jesus is the true sacrifice being offered. At the beginning of the sermon, some of you might have said, I don't know, i got to think about it. He, I, I remember him talking about being in the temple. Isn't he a high priest? But of course he said, well, I don't know. And by the end of the sermon, you would have just said, yes. <laughs> is Jesus the temple, the high priest? or the, Yes, he's all of those things. Never minimize Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplished. He is the fulfillment of the whole biblical story. And so what I want to continue to do is ask a few either-or questions that I'll just tell you are answered with yes. So this is a passage on the cross. If I were to ask you, is the cross where God reveals his heart and his character in the clearest way? Or is the cross where God shames the principalities and the powers? Or is the cross the point from which the Satan is driven out of the world? Or is the cross the death by which Christ conquers death? Or is the cross the supreme demonstration of the love of God? Or is the cross the refounding of the world in a way that brings peace and ends hostility? Or is the cross the enduring model of co-suffering love we are to follow? Or is the cross the eternal moment in which the sin of the world is forgiven? You would say, yes, all of those things. The cross is all of those things. So we don't want to simplify who God is and what he's done. We could say in light of Jesus' statement, Father, forgive them, the cross is both ugly and beautiful. It's as ugly as human sin and as beautiful as divine love. The cross is where the world, you could say, violently sinned its sin into the body of the Son of God, and he absorbed it, and he recycles it into love, mercy, and forgiveness, so that from the cross he does not cry out, avenge me, but rather, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All right, the next thing I want to focus on is... Is Jesus being crucified? I mean, it's interesting that he's not the only one. He's, he's crucified with two other human beings. And as I was kind of thinking through difficult questions that challenge you, that make you, I mean, you're, you're, you're actually almost forced to have a big view of God if you're going to answer these questions honestly. The next question I was thinking about in this text is, well, in the midst of such suffering, where is God if he's good, Right? I mean, that's a common question. That's one of the most common questions. When I mean, the world's hard, there's a lot of suffering. I've had a lot of suffering. If God is good, where is he? In fact, the response to that has a, a fancy word, a theodicy, a response to that question. I love the story of Jesus on the cross for many reasons. But I will say on this question, the only credible Christian theodicy is that God himself fully shares our suffering in Christ. We affirm that God is good, and we know that there is horrible suffering in the world. And, and on Good Friday, we see God does not exempt himself from it. Even part of the mystery, Peter says, by his wounds we are healed. Jesus is not crucified as a lone sufferer. He's crucified as God with us in our suffering. 
the God-man nailed to a tree. I say this all the time. That's good Christian orthodoxy. Jesus is fully God and fully human. And as God, the suffering of Jesus is unique. There's never been anything like it before, and there will never be anything like it again. The one who spoke all of matter into existence, the author of life itself, suffering and dying, there's no, there's, you, you can't compare anything to it. But as, as a man, as a human, the suffering of Jesus is in full solidarity with all human suffering. God has joined humanity in its common lot of suffering. So I know sometimes we wrestle with suffering and how meaningless and pointless it feels, right? And I'll say this, if suffering is inevitable and pointless, if you ever find your suffering's inevitable and it's, and it's pointless, it's an inevitability and a pointlessness that God in Christ shares with us. And here's the thing, if Christ shares in it, it's no longer meaningless or pointless. (laughs) It's one of the things I like to say, both to remind all of us, because I think social media can distort our realities, but really to talk to those of you who are new at Crossview or maybe even visiting for the first time. I know it is common practice to walk in a church, look around, and think everybody's life is good but mine. And everybody's, everybody's about to walk into the most beautiful Thanksgiving holiday they've ever had, and they don't know what I've lost in the last year. And here's what I want to tell you as a pastor who's been given the privilege to get to know the people in this church family. Every single person in this room is either in the midst of very serious suffering or one loving relationship away from it, and they're carrying it with them today. You are not alone. You are not alone as a human being in this room And you are not alone, and it's not meaningless, and it's not pointless, because Jesus Christ himself has entered into our suffering with us and given us dignity as we suffer. Amen and hallelujah. Amen and hallelujah. It's good news, because I know there's a lot of hurt, but you and I don't hurt without hope, right? We don't hurt without hope. All right, I want to talk about this Remember Me, and if you'll permit me, I'm going to make us feel, I just made you feel good, right? You're not alone, you're suffering. Now I'm going to make you feel small. Is that okay? Um, But you've got these two different criminals or men on either side, and you have two very, and I think, again, Luke's strategic in how he presents this, two very different responses, and and you've got one person who responds a very negative way towards Jesus and one who opens the door to paradise in the way that they respond to Jesus. And this one prays, remember me. I want to think about why, why ask Jesus to remember me? Why would that be significant? I heard another pastor do this. This is true for me. I won't assume it's true for you, but if you ask me my grandparents' name, I can tell you. I know that. If you ask me my great-grandparents' name, I think I might get one or two. I don't know them all. I maybe be able to look them up online, and I could maybe tell you their names, but I don't know them, or I don't know anything about them. And I don't know a single great-grandparent. I don't. And, and, and what that means then is, in my situation, I have a son. If he grows up and gets married and has a kid, I'll have a grandkid, right? If they have kids, my grandkids will know me. My great-grandkids may know me. My great-great-grandkids won't have a clue who I am. I told you I'm going to make you feel small. In four generations, 
you will be forgotten. Should make you feel a little small. And that's okay, because God is big. <laughs> and if Jesus remembers you, you're going to be okay. He'll never forget you. Now, what do I mean by this? I spent a little time talking about this word, paradise. I actually heard a teaching on this. I could go much farther. Um, one of the Bible Project guys was talking about this word, paradise, and I loved it. And so I'm going to share some of it with you. Uh, the word paradise is really it's just a straight transliteration from the Greek word paradisos. In other words, we took the Greek word, we took the Greek letters, we just put English letters there, and we got paradise. Most of us, probably, when we hear the word paradise, today you'll be with me in paradise. Most of us, when we hear that word, we think of heaven. But the word literally means garden. So I want to walk you through this because it's I think it's kind of cool to think through. What Jesus is saying to this criminal who says, Jesus, remember me. I mean, I doubt he's, I doubt he's on the cross saying, and for this man actually has never forgotten. We don't know his name, but we still preach about him 2,000 years later. But, but, but four generations will be forgotten. Jesus, remember me. And what Jesus is saying to this criminal as they're dying is, I'll see you in the garden later today. I'll see you in the garden. Later today, I'll see you in the garden. That's what he's literally saying to this man. And, and you, can, you can kind of play with this, but in re, I really am convinced there is only one garden Jesus could be referring to. And it's the Garden of Eden, right? Most people, I mean, even if you haven't read the Bible, you probably know in the beginning, Adam and Eve find themselves in the Garden of Eden. Of Eden. And so again, we've got our questions. What would it mean for Jesus to say he'll meet him in the Garden of Eden later today while they're dying? <laughs> I mean, he's going to meet him in paradise, someplace that they can hang out after they're dead later today, right? It's just, what is going on? It should be a bit puzzling. And so we could talk about, if we had more time, we could talk about where is paradise. I'm going to jump to the conclusion quickly there. But, but, but we, I'll just raise this question for now. When is paradise? Is it in the past in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam and Eve? Or is it today or later this afternoon with Jesus? Or let me add to that, we could jump to the end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 22, and you're going to get a renewed Garden of Eden, a garden city with a tree of life. And that's in the future, not just kind of like next week future, but cosmic future. And so here's my either or questions for you. When is paradise? Is it in the past? Is it in the present? Or is it in the future? And the answer is... Yes. <laughs> now, that might even confuse you as you say it. It's okay, but it's true. And I'm going to make a little bit of a jump here, but I'll back it up with some scriptures. Why can I say that? Because the whole arc of the biblical story is about us being in relationship with the living God who is the author of our life. The only reason there is being is because there's this God who called being forth. 
And the whole arc of the story is how God created us in the Garden of Eden to be in right relationship with him. And we messed it up right away and we've been messing it up ever since, right? That's when we talk about sin in Christian circles, we're talking about what we've done to rebel against this good and loving God and, and the ways we've created barriers. And when we talk about Jesus on the cross, we're talking about the ways Jesus has conquered sin so that we can be in relationship with him again. And so when we talk about when is paradise or where is paradise, what I want to submit to you is paradise isn't so much a place or a time, but a person. And his name is Jesus. And you are in paradise when you are with paradise. Amen? In fact, as I was listening uh, to this talk, uh, the speaker talked about Jesus as, I like this, the eternal now. Am I blown? I told you I want a bigger view of God, the, the, the perpetual presence. Now, why do I say that? Well, because in Revelation chapter 1, what does Jesus say when he's talking to John? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then he says what? I am the one who is and was and is to come. He's the eternal presence. And you don't even need to fully understand it. Just let that grow your view of who God is. Or how about what Paul says, one of my favorite passages in Colossians chapter 1. I don't have a slide, so just listen. This is what Paul says. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So everything God, everything God wants to say, he said in Jesus. He existed before anything was created. He is and was and is to come. And he's supreme over all creation. That's who Jesus is. Don't make him smaller than that. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Everything was created through him and for him. Never minimize Jesus. <laughs> he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. The eternal now holds all creation together. Uh, Jesus, hallelujah, Jesus is the heartbeat at the heart of the universe. We could say this, when God wanted to communicate the essence of his very being, he became a human and he poured out his entire life in an act of self-giving love. Paradise is a person. In Ephesians 1, 23, the very last verse in chapter 1, Paul says this, Christ fills all things everywhere with himself. So Christ holds all things together because he fills all things everywhere with himself. In other words, without that outpouring, other-centered, love-sustaining person, there is not a moment or a molecule in our universe that would even exist in the first place. I want to grow your view of God this morning. There's not a moment or a molecule that would exist if Christ wasn't filling it with his very being because he is true reality. Because he is the author of creation. So when we call Jesus the eternal now, the one who is and was and is to come, we can say you can be in the present, you can be in the past, you can be in the future, and there's never been a moment or a molecule that you've ever encountered in your life that doesn't have Jesus making its existence 
possible. So don't minimize God. Grow your view of God. What did I say last week? I, I think about this. We want to, because Jesus is this, this out, he is love. He's this outpouring of love. And, and what, are we, what are we battling? And we're battling so much anxiety and so much fear. And what happens when fear runs rampant? We start to believe that evil is all conquering and God is powerless. Did I, did, did I just not, did you hear what I said about Jesus? He holds it all together and he fills it with himself. And that has something to say to your fear and your anxiety if you have the courage and the faith to surrender and believe and trust in the words of God. So you and I can say, well, I'm small and in four generations I'll be forgotten, but Jesus will remember me forever. And that matters because forever is a long time and your Lord will not forget you. He went to the cross for you. He will not forget you. Amen? Let's pray. Father of mercy, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Help us to see and to experience the true reality that is you. Jesus, if you hold all things together, if you fill everything with yourself, that means we are just, we are one prayer away from paradise. The eternal now. You have made yourself available to us. And we get to taste you today. Now we won't know the fullness of you until you return and make all things new. And we long for that day but we still can know you today and experience, we can taste paradise. All of eternity now in you, Jesus. And so we invite you, we want to be in paradise, or this morning, this morning we'll say we want to be with paradise. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge with the words of Paul that in you we live and move and have our being, that you are over all and through all and in all. So grow our view of you this week. Help us to see you where we've never seen you before. And help us to take a step towards the truest reality where you are at the center of all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.